You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps. That's netsuite.com gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you from Davos, Switzerland. Today on the program, I talk with the leaders of four of Russia's neighbors to the West, starting with Ukraine's President Zelensky. I ask under what conditions he would be willing to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. Then President Duda of Poland explains just how much suffering Russia has caused his nation in the past. And top ministers from Finland and Sweden tell me about their nation's historic decisions to apply for NATO membership. Then a rare interview with Iran's foreign minister at a critical time in talks for a revived nuclear deal. To make sure that an Iran that is already acting with incredible aggression doesn't have a nuclear weapon or the ability to produce one on short notice. Will they reach an agreement or will the talks fall apart? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done. Finally, one more senseless act of violence this time in Texas. I'll give you some of my thoughts on how to end this endless carnage. But first, here's my take. The World Economic Forum in Davos is usually fixated on the future. Most years, the attendees are dazzled by some country, company, or technology promising to burst forward, force change, dominate the next decade. This year, the focus was not on the future, but the past. People delved back into history to debate what caused Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Swedish finance minister explained why his country, which hasn't been at war since the Napoleonic Wars, was breaking its 200-year tradition of neutrality with his bid to join NATO. The Finnish foreign minister recalled Finland's resistance to Moscow's aggression in the Winter War of 1939 and 1940. In past years at Davos, Companies took storefronts and plastered them with jubilant signs, cheering on dynamism, acceleration, and disruption. This time, there were far fewer placards and slogans, some of them meekly promising sustainability or progress on climate change. The one genuinely cheerful sign I saw said, Will the Saudi GDP now be fueled by YOLO, FOMO, and WYWH? With oil at over $100 a barrel, the Saudi regime has much to be excited about. The storefront that dominated attention was one that used to be booked for years by Russians who hosted lavish cocktail parties and caviar tastings there with the country's moneyed elite. Now it has a sign in the window that reads in small, clear type, this used to be the Russian house in Davos. Now it's the Russian war crimes house in Davos. Sponsored by the Ukrainian businessman, Viktor Pinchuk, the rooms are filled with striking images and stories of Russia's barbaric actions in its campaign against Ukraine. 
Ukraine dominated Davos this year, and most people I spoke to were quite unsure how this war would end. That played into a larger sense of uncertainty about the world that we are heading into, a world of multiplying risks. Tharman Shanmugaratnam, Singapore's senior minister, said to me, we know the risks that are out there are large. They're not about black swan events coming out of the blue. A pandemic was predicted. Russia's invasion was a known possibility. Another pandemic or more frequent climate crises, these are not just possible but likely. We can't keep expecting and planning for a return to calm, untroubled times. A former central banker told me that economic policymakers felt that they were in uncharted territory. The old model, where inflation moves up ever so slightly and then you raised rates a tiny bit and all was well, that's dead. We're in a new world and we're all just experimenting. There is a broader foreboding, a sense that the era we have just lived through, the three decades since 1990, may have been an unusual, perhaps even unique one, in which great power politics and geopolitical tensions that normally dominate and define international life were absent. The giddy trends of recent times, globalization, the information revolution, even democratization, were trends built on an edifice of power, America's superpower status. But that strength has been waning for some years, caused by Iraq, the global financial crisis, COVID. Now it is being challenged, first by China and then Russia. In all this gloom, there's one distinctly hopeful sign. Europe is acting with a greater sense of unity and purpose than I've ever seen before. Every European leader I spoke with believed that Russia's aggression had sparked a revolution of sorts across the continent. The EU has shown remarkable unity on sanctions and is slowly but steadily coming together on energy policy. These successes could evolve into greater coordination on foreign and even defense policy. Europeans have realized at a fundamental level that they were taking peace and stability for granted, that it might now have to be created and sustained by hard work and commitment, in part by building hard power of their own and deploying it strategically. There are serious debates about ending the slow, consensual process of EU decision-making that allows one country like Hungary to veto its efforts. The most lasting legacy of this crisis could be a new role for Europe as a more purposeful strategic actor on the world stage. But for that to happen, this experience in uniting against Russia has to work. Only success can breed more success. Failure will doom this experiment. The founding fathers of the European Union, like Robert Schuman and Jean Monnet, were steeped in history and determined to ensure that war did not break out again in Europe. Today's statesmen need to infuse their day-to-day -day decisions with a similar sense of history. 50 years from now, no one will remember whether growth slowed on the continent for a couple of quarters in 2022, or if Brussels had to pay extra for natural gas from the US. What they will recall is the answer to one question. Who won the war in Ukraine? Putin or the West? Go to cnn.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let us get started.
here in Davos, I had the opportunity to talk to the most important world leader who wasn't here, Volodymyr Zelensky. The interview was part of an event organized by the Viktor Pinchuk Foundation, which focuses most of its efforts on its home country of Ukraine. Mr. President, a pleasure once again to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Glad to see you. Let me begin by asking you, um, you know, in 1942, uh, Churchill said, this is not the end, this is not the beginning of the end, but this may be the end of the beginning. And what he was trying to steal everyone for was the idea that this was a long war, and he turned out to be right. Where do you think we are in this, in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine and really Russia and the world? Thank you for this question. As far as uh, our war is concerned, the all-out war of the Russian Federation against Ukraine, you know, Ukraine is fighting for its independence and freedom. It has been doing so for years, for decades and centuries, and even longer. And I think that today we are speaking about the war for independence, for freedom of the European continent, Europe whole and united. And we are speaking about the beginning of the peaceful and united Ukraine as well. As far as my guess, um, when this war might end, that would depend on several uh, things, very specific things. First of all, the will and the desire of the United West to stay united in supporting Ukraine with uh, weapons, with finance to boost our resilience and political will not to be afraid but fight against the Russian Federation in this hybrid war, not with boots on the ground, of course, but in various other alternative ways. And it also hinges on the desire of the Russian Federation. This war will be over sooner or later. I'm sure there would be a some sort of a peaceful process, some sort of talks and we would be discussing the issues of who Ukraine is going to negotiate with, with what president of the Russian Federation that we are going to negotiate with. I hope that would be a different president in the Russian Federation. Thank you. Do you believe it is impossible at this point to negotiate with Vladimir Putin an end to this conflict? As matters stand, I think that the incumbent president of the Russian Federation does not fully understand what's going on. He is not keenly aware of what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine is not going to concede our territory. We are fighting in our country, on our land. So um, I think that the president of the Russian Federation should be uh, actually shoved to, uh, into the reality of today, not being in this bubble, in this alternative reality of his that he has been building for quite a long time and he is still in this world of propaganda uh, in the Russian Federation. So I can uh, only talk with uh, the president directly with no intermediaries, no brokers. 
once the president is prepared to leave his bubble of this alternative reality into the real world and talk to us, understand that a lot of people are being killed, including civilians, perhaps then uh, will he understand that we should start talking and should put the end to this war that he launched, his country is waging against us. And perhaps then we will be able to talk, unless it is too late to find some diplomatic way off, a way out of this situation. You talked about Ukraine fighting until its territories are recovered, Mr. President. Do you refer in that situation to territories lost this year, or will Ukraine fight until it recovers the territories it lost in 2014? You know, when Ukraine says that it will be fighting to regain its territories, it means that Ukraine will be fighting until it gains all its territory back. So it doesn't mean anything else. It's about our sovereignty, about our territorial integrity. It's about our independence. Would it be fair to say, um, Mr. President, and I think you are implying this uh, by what you've said, so far, the Russians are not negotiating seriously at all on any of these issues. Yes, you can say so. That would be fair to say. I can't see their willingness, nor can I see uh, any practicality in what we are talking about. At the beginning, there was an impression that we can move ahead. There would be a certain result or some outcome of those talks, but uh, it all has stalled. Uh, Mr. President, what, what do you what do you need from the world? The United States has is, has voted uh, about fifty billion dollars worth of arms. Do you have what you need? What more do you need? Just the confidence of uh, the world that they can do it. The world should be united. Europe, the world at large, should be united. We are as strong as you are united. We understand that technical, uh, technically, uh, weapon-wise, Russia is still prevailing. Uh, they uh, outnumber us, they outgun us. And what we need is weapons, of course. Um, and we need to be um, much more powerful. We should have much uh, greater firepower than the uh, Russians, not by several units but um, by times. Our huge benefit and our huge advantage over Russia would be when we are truly united, when every country is dead sure what side it is on. Next on GPS, I'll talk to the president of Poland, Ukraine's neighbor to the northwest. Even as Warsaw offers great assistance to Kyiv, it looks warily at Moscow. Poland threw off the yoke of communism in 1989 after nearly half a century in the Soviet sphere of influence. It has now been a NATO member for 23 years, and today it's critical to Ukraine's ability to continue to fight against Russia. Among other help, Poland has taken in the lion's share of refugees from its neighbor to the southeast, and it acts as a waypoint for Western weapons and aid to Ukraine. 
I've been waiting to speak to Polish President Andrzej Duda for years. I got my chance this week in Davos. President Duda, pleasure to have you on, sir. Bardzo się cieszę. Dziękuję za zaproszenie. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Let me ask you right away. There are currently proposals being put in Europe uh, to the Russian government, as far as we understand, an Italian proposal that offers a kind of settlement which says Ukraine will be neutral, Crimea and Donbass will essentially stay with Russia, and that we can have a resumption of normal relations in a sense, a kind of negotiated settlement, settlement to the end of the war. What is your view about that? As I understand it, the rule is very simple. There can be no such agreement which would lead to a peaceful settlement of the situation that we are faced with in Ukraine today, because Russia attacked Ukraine without any justification, completely without any reason, because all the information about some kind of alleged Nazism in Ukraine, this is just Russian propaganda. It has nothing to do with reality. That was a brutal aggression. It is a brutal war which is being waged by Russia against Ukraine, against a sovereign and independent state. Russia wants to expand its sphere of influence. It's as simple as that. It wants to force Ukraine to be subjected to it. This is the only reason. And we cannot accept the fact that in a free and democratic world, any agreement which was would be supposed to put an end to this war could happen without the participation of Ukraine and without the agreement of Ukraine. If this war is to come to an end, it has to come to an end upon such conditions to which Ukraine will agree, sitting at the negotiation table. Well, let me repeat once again, sitting at the negotiating table. Nothing can happen above the heads of Ukrainian authorities. Nothing can happen above the heads of the Ukrainian people. It has to be take place with their participation, and such conditions must be taken and agreed on, which they accept to me. This is a precondition, the basic condition, and only then can we talk about peace, which has been worked out in an honest way and which can be a stable peace. A former uh, leader in Poland once said, um, step one for the Russians is Georgia, step two is Ukraine, step three is Poland. Do you in Poland feel a real threat from Russia? Tak. So there is no doubt whatsoever uh, that Polish society is afraid of Russia. We have got some historical experiences. Sometimes I'm asked to give them a brief account of Polish history. Say the truth, if you look at the Polish history, the recent period that we have seen is uh, very few and far between when we have enjoyed peace in Poland, uh, dozens of years of uh, peace. However, uh, however, our history um, extends over 1,000 years of history with Germany and 400 years of uh, war with uh, Russia. We also had partitions in Poland. Poland did not exist on the map for 123 years. A large piece of Poland was occupied by the Tsarist Russia. Then we were invaded by uh, the Soviet in 1920. Then again, Russia invaded us along with Nazi Germany in September 1939. And this was the start of the Second World War, precisely. Uh, Polish officers were murdered in 1940 in Katyn, where Russians murdered, uh, shooting in the back of their heads 12,000 Polish officers, whom they took as prisoners of war in breach of all conventions. This is our history. Uh, then we remained in the Russian sphere of influence. We were behind the Iron Curtain. So that is a tragic history. All Polish people know it perfectly well. And Polish people are afraid. They do not want to find themselves in the Russian sphere of influence. 
Today, the Poles are ready to sacrifice a lot from their welfare in order to strengthen our armed forces. We have adopted a new bill. Not only are we increasing defense spending to the level of more than 2% of GDP, according to NATO standards, but next uh, year we are going to raise them to the level of 3% of GDP, and in the following years we are going to go, go above that threshold. We want to increase our army to 250,000 professional soldiers and 50,000 soldiers of territorial defense force, uh, volunteers in other words. So we want also to strengthen the infrastructure of our armed forces. That is why we are making huge purchases. Of course, we are delighted today and people in Poland can have a good night's sleep. We're happy that today 10,000 U.S. Army soldiers are stationed in Poland protecting our land also under the guarantees of Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty. That's very good, but we want to strengthen our armed forces to make sure that the U.S. armed forces are only an auxiliary force, uh, only act as a guarantor. But really what we want to do is to defend ourselves. And I do believe that in the years to come, in the near future, also thanks to the heroism of the Ukrainians who have put up such a fierce resistance against uh, Russians, uh, Russians are breaking out their teeth there, as we say. I hope that thanks to that we will have time to strengthen our armed forces over the next couple of years so that it does not pay off to attack us because we are a brave nation. We have got a very valiant, very valiant soldiers. I believe they are equally brave as Ukrainian soldiers. Russians know that, and I believe that when we are stronger, they will be afraid to attack us. You and your government have taken a very tough stand against the Russians and in favor of the U Ukrainians. Um, you are facing you you're facing enormous costs as a, as a result of all this. Uh, probably the most uh, outside of the Ukrainians. You, uh, Poland, as you say, has taken two million people. My understanding is there are no refugee camps. These two million people, Ukrainians, are being housed individually, almost for the most part, by Ukra by Polish citizens in their houses. Do you worry that? At some point, this cost will become too large for Poland because this conflict seems like it's going to go on for a while. I'm very grateful to my compatriots for their behavior, for their stance, because indeed they opened up their hearts and they opened up their homes. And literally, they took more than two million people into their homes, mainly women and children. To me, it was really amazing, and I'm really moved by this. I could tell the Ukrainian men who are fighting on the front lines today, I could tell them, listen, your women and children are safe in Poland, don't worry, nothing will happen to them. So you can fight uh, with Russia. I think that is extremely important. Every man has a sense of that. President Duda, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Coming up in a moment on GPS, I'll talk to top officials from Sweden and Finland. Both applied for membership in NATO last week, seeking to increase their own security, but also risking becoming Russia's next targets. Last weekend, Russia turned off the tap, halting natural gas exports to Finland. This came just days after Finland and its Nordic neighbor, Sweden, officially applied for membership to NATO. At the World Economic Forum in Davos this week, I talked to Finland's foreign minister, Pekka Havisto, and Sweden's finance minister, Mikhail Damberg, about those paradigm-shifting decisions. Sweden has been neutral for 200 years, maybe more. Um, this is a big deal. Give us a sense of, do Swedes think of it in those historical terms? This is a break with centuries of neutrality? I think you have to understand that Sweden has been non-aligned for 200 years. Last time we were at war was the, the Napoleon Wars. 
that brings some perspectives to it. So, so no ordinary family in Sweden has experienced war themselves. They have, might have contacts with Finland, with other countries. People have fled to Sweden with experience in war, but Sweden itself has not experienced war. So for us, the non-aligned politics has been very pragmatic. It's been a way of not getting involved in, in war. So for us, changing these policies is quite big. It's a huge thing. It's generation of Swedes that have grown up. It has not been the same for 200 years, but still basically had a, a political position not getting involved and, and being non-aligned. So, but it has changed. Uh, the, the last couple of decades, we've joined the European Union. We have a broad cooperation, not least with Finland, our closest allied, but also a very strong partnership with NATO. So, of course, this has changed over the years, but uh, this is a big historic event for Sweden. And for you, this Russian aggression tells you you're in a new world, you're in a new security environment. Uh, yes, totally a new world, and also we think it's a long-term change. It's not just the war right now. This is a new Russia, this is a new environment. Uh, so f for many Swedes, I think th this really brought the debate to a different level. Uh, so we had a debate in Sweden, but it was quite cautious, it was quite respectful. You could have different opinion, but in the end, most people, the population, but most political parties agreed this was the time to see that we are more secure within NATO than outside NATO, and we want to go hand in hand with Finland. From Finland's point of view, you also have a long history here, and it's been one way you've been very careful not to provoke the Russians because you share that border in a in a way, you're almost a suburb of, uh, of St. Petersburg. Uh, what, what made you change? Well, of course, we have 1,300 kilometer common border, and, and we want to maintain that uh, border peaceful. And how we, in Finland, think about Russia is, is long perspective also. We look 100 year backwards and 100 year forward. And when we look towards the future, we don't know what's coming after Putin. Is it something better, more democratic, or is it something worse? And we have to be prepared for all different scenarios of, of Russia. Russia's immediate reaction was to threaten you and then to cut off energy. Um, do, you, do you worry that there will be more Russian actions? Well, our feeling is that, yes, Russia did not like the, the idea that there's an enlargement of NATO, and particularly that NATO is coming closer uh, with the Finnish border, Finnish-Russian border, and so forth. There were critical comments on that. But at the same time, I, my understanding is that uh, it didn't trigger any military action against Finland or Sweden. It, it might trigger something on cyberspace or on hybrid uh, formats and so forth. But, uh, of course, we have been all the time saying that we are not provoking, we want to keep the border peaceful, we want to give, keep the bilateral cooperation, what is needed even in these circumstances on the border, on the professional basis. One big unpredictable element of this could be that Russia invades Finland. Do you think that's a serious prospect and are you prepared? Well, we have always, of course, uh, due to our history, been prepared. Uh, for that, we have been prepared for the military action, we have been prepared for uh, a violation of our airspace, our land, our territory. 
we have been prepared for actually cyber and, and hybrid threats and, 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 and so forth and so forth and, and that has been that's in our DNA and, and that's a part of our, our defense mentally whoever wants to to, uh, to try to harm us will will face the consequences from our side ministers thank you so much pleasure to have thank you this conversation thank you thank you next on GPS tensions over Ukraine boiled over into war is Iran the next site of international hostilities? I will talk to that nation's foreign minister when we come back. While the world has been watching Ukraine, another global hotspot has been simmering, Iran. That nation could have enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon in a matter of weeks, according to top officials in the United States and Israel. And on Wednesday, the U.S.'s special envoy for Iran said the odds are against a nuclear deal being agreed to with the Islamic Republic. I had a rare chance to talk to Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, on Thursday. Let me ask you about uh, the, the uh, so-called Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Um, Rob Malley, the American official who is in charge of uh, handling that portfolio, said recently that the, the prospects for the deal uh, being re renewed are tenuous at best, fragile, uh, uh, cast doubt that it would happen. Do you share that view, that the Iran nuclear deal is unlikely to come back into force? Just like the Foreign Minister of the United States, the Foreign Secretary, and also Mr. Rob Malay, I, I, I am facing a lot of pressure coming from my parliament. There are strong people um, inside both countries that are against uh, the, the revival of JCPOA for, for their own reasons. Of course, we are receiving messages from Rob Malay and some, some of the officials of the United States at the highest level, Mr. Biden himself, that are a little bit different uh, from what we hear from them, the, the, the public statements that they make. We think that Mr. Biden is uh, facing some kind of inaction. Uh, I hope that the, the American side will act and behave realistically. The, the subject is important to us. The most important thing is that uh, in, the, in the return of all the parties to JCPOA, uh, we need to we need to uh, benefit from the economic gains of JCPOA. The, the elements of the Trump's uh, uh, maximum uh, 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 pressure policy should be removed. This is something that Mr. Biden said from the very beginning of his ca presidential campaign. You cannot return to JCPOA, but at the same time, Iran will be deprived of its uh, uh, economic gains. You cannot return to JCPOA, but the elements and the factors of Trump's maximum pressure policy are still there. Mr. Uh, Biden has to choose one of these. Let me ask you about the what, what is reported to be the central issue that is the obstacle now, the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization, the Iranian Republican Guards. It seems to me from the outside that this is an issue outside of the nuclear deal. Um, in other words, there are things that Iran or the Revolutionary Guard have done uh, which are which have triggered this designation rightly or wrongly, but they have nothing to do with the Iran nuclear deal. So why 
allow the issue of the Revolutionary Guard to interfere with whether or not you, you, you go ahead with the, the deal? Uh, as a person who is responsible for our di uh, diplomacy team and negotiating team, uh, honestly, uh, what what is the the hurdle? What, what has caused the pause, should I say, or a cessation in in the talks? Is that uh, economic guarantees? We have not come uh, to the point where we can trust the American side. So my understanding is that whether or not the Revolutionary Guard are designated as foreign terrorist organization makes no difference practically. Uh, Iran is in any case under under sanctions. Uh, and has from the United States from the 1980s. There is no additional sanction that comes with that. There's no additional curtailment of activity. It's a purely symbolic issue. So why would you let that uh, distract you from whether or not you can get back into the deal? Is that a fair way to think about it? I think... First of all, the Americans know very well that if they want to return to JCPOA, what is it that they need to do? They know very well, full well, what it is required from them. President Biden knows very well, understands very well. But tell us in case he doesn't understand. What does it, what does it require? Just the economic... He knows very well what he should do. The most important thing is that the economic sanctions need to be lifted in an effective way. The most important thing is that the maximum pressure policy of the uh, Trump era, the factors, the elements there need to be removed. We are not asking for much, but reducing these fundamental things to just one subject and focusing on it, I think... I think this is not a good behavior. This is not a good reaction. The Americans know very well what the realities are, what is happening on the ground, and what they should do. We have kept the window of diplomacy open, and in order to reach a good and lasting deal, we are determined, we are serious about it, and it has been us, the Iranian side, that has put initiatives on the table and helped the window of diplomacy open. But uh, let me be uh, frank with you. We have intelligence that the Zionist, Zionist regime, they have uh, taken the foreign policy of the U.S. hostage. The interest of the U.S. hostage, Mr. Biden should make the decision. Does he really want to kill the time, waste the time, or does he want to be brave and stay true to the commitments, obligations of the United States under JCPOA? We have been the most serious and most honest, and we have done the most accurate things. But now it is the, Amer uh, the United States that has to make the decision. And I think if the Zionist lobby uh, distances itself uh, from the national interests of the U.S. just a little, Mr. Biden will be able to make uh, the decision required for reaching a good deal. But if it doesn't happen, you know, in Iran in the last 40 years, we have uh, withstood these pressures and we have other options on the table as well.
When we come back, I'll bring you the most poignant part of my interview with Ukraine's President Zelensky. He made a point to express his sorrow over the terrible school shooting in Texas. I'll also give you my thoughts on that tragedy when we come back. And now for the last look. When President Zelensky spoke to me at Davos, he took time out from worrying about the many tragedies all around him to talk about a tragedy in the United States. First of all, I would like to express my condolences to all of the relatives and family members of the children who were killed in an awful shooting in Texas at a school in the USA. This is terrible to have victims of shooters in peaceful time. So if you ask me about my opinion about the protection of the war, it happens everywhere. It happens in the world. Uh, it happens within seemingly peaceful societies. For me, the most gut-wrenching aspect of this shooting, as well as all the others, is that what needs to be done is so blindingly obvious. Let me make some points about it that I have made 10 years ago after the Newtown massacre. The most important fact to know about America's gun violence is that it is off the charts compared to any other advanced country in the world. According to estimates by the University of Washington, we have eight times the rate of gun homicides compared to Canada, 50 times compared to Germany, 100 times compared to the UK, and a staggering 250 times compared to Japan. So when people talk about the mental state of the shooter, just keep asking yourself about those numbers. Do we have 50 times the rate of mentally disturbed people as Germany? Or is our level of violence in movies and video games 250 times more than that watched and consumed in Japan? Obviously not. So what explains our exceptional rates of gun killings? Well, there is one area where we are exceptional, the number of guns that are easily available in America. With 4% of the world's population, we have almost 50% of the world's guns. There are more guns in people's possession than there are people in the United States. It's easy for an 18-year-old in Texas to buy AR-15-style rifles whose designed purpose is to kill human beings with deadly speed. Gun control works. Japan, Germany, Britain, and Canada are all very different countries and cultures, but they have one common threat, strong gun control laws, and that has one common result, low gun violence. Ten years ago, I mentioned an incident that took place in China that's also worth repeating. Just hours before the Newtown shootings, a mentally disturbed man entered a school in China's Hanan province. He tried to kill as many children as he could. He injured many, but he did not kill a single one because the only weapon he could get his hands on was a knife. I will keep saying this. We know what would work. There has rarely been so much evidence pointing in one direction if all of us were just willing to open our eyes. Thanks to all of you for being part of my special program this week from Davos. I will see you next week.